Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Amy Marcus is the author of We the Scientists, How a Daring Team of Parents and Doctors Forged a New Path for Medicine. Amy is a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She won a Pulitzer Prize for Beat Reporting in 2005 for her series of stories about cancer survivors. Amy is also the author of The View from Nebo and Jerusalem, 1913, books which grew out of her reporting in the Middle East as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss We the Scientists. And I saw the cover behind you. Hold it up um, in case I... Yes. How a daring here. I'm reading the subtitle. How a daring team of parents and doctors forged a new path for medicine. Yes. 
Okay. Tell us everything about this book and particularly how your own mother's diagnosis sort of inspired your, your hunt for answers to diagnoses and everything. Yeah. No, first, thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. We the Scientists does have its origins in a personal story. My mother was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, metastatic gallbladder cancer. I'm and so sorry. Thank you. Yeah. No, it was it was so difficult also because you know, I'm a reporter and I cover health. And so I was used to searching for answers and doing research. And I interviewed so many doctors trying to find some effective therapy for her. And I learned that there were none in part because it's a very rare disease and pharmaceutical companies weren't pursuing drugs and doctors weren't able to study it. They didn't have a lot of patients and researchers didn't think of it as a disease they wanted to focus on. And unfortunately, my mother passed away after a little bit over two years with the disease. And it really sort of launched me into thinking about why is it so hard to advance science? Why aren't things moving faster? Why can't we get more drugs out there for more diseases? And I ended up taking some time off from my job as a Wall Street Journal science reporter, health and science reporter. And I traveled around the country and I met people who were trying to change the system. And one of the groups that I ended up meeting were a group of parents whose children also have a rare disease. It's called Neiman Pick Type C. It's a cholesterol um, disorder and it's fatal. And they were trying to forge a very unusual collaboration where they would work as partners with scientists and researchers to try to find a drug to treat this disease. And I just started following them following them and chronicling their story. And you did that for 10 years. Yes, it was a very, <laughs> it was a very long process. I mean, this isn't like you did this for a semester or something like that. No, I mean, you know, I really got to know everyone. I like, you know, I met all their kids and I got to know the parents and I got to know the scientists. I mean, one of the things that's unusual in rare disease communities is everyone knows each other. Mm. I mean, you know, they're, they're relatively small communities and, you know, there are annual kind of science and parent support group meetings. And then, you know, the parents were so welcoming. They invited me into their homes. I got to meet the children and the scientists let me come into their labs. And so I, I, you know, and I kept going because they eventually did find a drug that they wanted to develop together. And they, they were able to get it into a clinical trial and they, they ended up talking to FDA and try, you know, really participating in this project in a way that, you know, was more unusual. And so I kind of just kept going with them. That's amazing. It's like, just so incredible. It also like blows my mind that in today's day and age, like who is it up to who decides which lives are worth saving, which diseases? I mean, I understand it's a numbers game, but when it's your loved one, right? Like, why does that mean there shouldn't be a cure or are there just way too many? I mean, it sounds like a naive question, but is it just impossible? Like, it's not a naive question. I think it's, I think it's the central question, you know, like how do we decide where we're going to focus our attention and our resources and are some lives more valuable than others? I mean, obviously I think all lives are valuable. So like, and I, and I think everyone deserves 
if not a treatment, because no one can be guaranteed a treatment. I mean, I think one of the arguments of this book is a treatment is not guaranteed, but we should create a system where working together, we have a better chance to develop a treatment mm-hmm. and we can and we can partner to, to develop a treatment. Because one of the reasons why I think it's hard to do this is because we don't use all of the expertise mm-hmm. that's available to us. Like I argue that these parents, they know their children so well. They immerse themselves in this disease. They, I mean, many doctors never see a patient in their entire careers with Neiman Peck, you know, disease type C. It's very, very rare. There's only around 200 or so cases in the U.S., maybe 500 or so cases, you know, internationally. And so if that's the case, then we have to use all the data and all the resources. And that means trying to help all of us participate in science. Yeah. I love how you call them like, what did you say? Like social scientists, not social science. You had some great buzzword for community activists. They're, they're citizen scientists. Yes, yes, them, yes. Right? That was yes. it. Citizen scientists. Yes. Right. <laughs> there's a broad, you know, there's a broad sort of movement of citizen science. It's been around for a while. And I'm um, even the title of the book, we, the scientists, like I intentionally chose that as a kind of echo to we the people, yes. you know, that that we that we all should consider ourselves not just the beneficiaries of science, but also potential contributors to science. I mean, I feel like with the pandemic, everybody was sort of was trying to help in their own way, right? That was like another example when we were all collectively fighting for the vaccine and everybody was doing whatever they could. I mean, obviously that affected everybody, but you know, I think we saw that. I think many people who hadn't been exposed to that level of involvement saw even the layperson sort of going through all the documents and like figuring out what to do and and all of that. It's just how to scale that for every disease. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned in the book long COVID. You know, the patients that struggle with symptoms for months or even years after a diagnosis with COVID-19. And I definitely think that all these groups that are emerging build on what has happened and come before. And I think that during the pandemic, we were much more attuned to the idea that it's a novel disease and we don't know a lot about it. And even the scientists don't know a lot about it and the doctors don't know a lot about it. So let's try to... um, gather data from the patients. And I, you know, I personally, one of the arguments in the book is I don't think that that should be confined to COVID-19 pandemic. I think that's an approach that we should bring to every disease because if you're living with a disease or someone you love is, then you have data and expertise that's incredibly valuable and you have something to contribute that might help accelerate the search for therapies and treatments. Wow. I have a dear friend whose mother passed away from lung cancer and she was really involved for a long time with the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. So every year I would go to that lunch. And it always blew my mind that the funding for that is like such a small fraction of what it is for even breast cancer. And that there's this, at least for that particular cancer, everybody, not everybody, but there's this assumption that it is, you've almost caused it yourself and therefore it doesn't deserve the funding that a blameless cancer, you know, that's like what they would talk about is perhaps as to why the treatment is less. Yeah. But again, like allocating resources and, and who gets to decide just seems, seems crazy in a way. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's such an important point that you're raising because I mean, you know, fighting for attention, you know, to try to get 
people to focus on the things that matter to you sometimes do turn on factors that are outside of the realm of science or even sometimes numbers. I mean, you know, people do bring a lot of like their own value system into deciding these things. And, you know, one of the things that I describe in We the Scientists is that at the National Institutes of Health, you know, there was an institute there called NCATS where the the director at the time, you know, one of his sort of visions was, you know, how can I collaborate with patients who have diseases that really don't, are often off the radar because Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of people or there's not a lot of interest or funding. And, you know, he, he got involved. He believed that the government should get involved. And I think that there is an argument to be made that some of the funding for biomedical research that comes via government institutions can be directed to create partnerships between scientists and those who want to, you know, be citizen scientists. Like one of the arguments in my book is let's try to, let's try to make partnerships here, including an ability to apply for research funding from the government, just like scientists do all the time for their, for the diseases they want to study. Totally. Oh my gosh. Well, wait, what was, tell me more about what it was like for you emotionally trying to be a impartial observer of this group of families and a reporter, but how could you not get swayed into the emotional component of, of, of the disease and the impact of it on the families? What was that like for you? Well, I definitely was emotional. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't park my emotions at the door. That's for sure. I definitely try as a reporter to bring my passion and interest in whatever I'm covering, you know, to, to my approach. I spent a lot of time with everybody and I really came away from the feeling of, you know, often, often in narratives about a race, a race against time, there's a villain in a sense. There's a, there's a, there's the bad guy. There's, you know, you know, sides. And, and one of the things I came away from this is there aren't sides, there aren't villains. There's a system that's really not working well. And there's so many obstacles that can just grind you down and, and seem like it makes it impossible for you to advance. And there's obstacles for the parents and for patients. And there's obstacles also for scientists. They're always worried about like, they have to, they have to you know, look for their next grant. They need to publish a paper so that they can get tenure. They need to justify how they're spending their time and their resources. There's nothing wrong with that. Like we all justify how we spend our time and our resources. But I mean, I came away from it feeling like the people involved here are all good people and yet it's not working as well as it should. And why is that? And how could we make changes to make it better? And I really tried, to, that's the way I tried to come at it as, um, you know, not pitting people against one another, but rather trying to understand their viewpoint, how they ended up in the room that we were all gathered in, and how their values informed the choices they were making and the arguments they were having. Interesting. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you mind backing up and telling me how you became a Wall Street Journal health reporter and Pulitzer Prize finalist and all of that? Can you, like, how did you get started on, on everything? And like, what did you think you wanted to be when you were a kid? I always wanted to be a writer. I think I came home from school when I was eight years old and announced to my parents that was what I was going to do. And I sort of never veered from that. I just, I loved writing. I always loved writing. I've been at the Wall Street Journal for many years. I started out as the sort of like lowest sort of entry level job you can have. I was, I was the news assistant for the, for the legal reporters. And I would go to the courthouse and pull their documents and I would bring them coffee and I would try to create charts, you know, that, like illustrated their amazing reporting and just sort of worked my way up, you know, to become a reporter. And I had spent many years as a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal covering the Middle East. And then, you know, got back, got back to the States and was sort of looking around, you know, what, what should I cover next? What's, what's of interest to me? And I tried education for a while, which I love. That was a great beat. But then there was this opening for for a health reporter on a new section that the paper was launching. And the editor was a good friend. And he approached me and said, I think you'd love writing about health. It's it's all about life and death and, and society and, you know, ethical issues. I just think you'd love it. And I hadn't given it a lot of thought before, but I, I sort of trusted my editor's vision for what the beat could, could be and joined on the team. And I've been with the health health and science team, you know, ever since. Wow. I feel like that must be super exciting because things are constantly changing. I mean, and, and sometimes like in diametrically opposite places. I mean, I feel like even everything from weight loss trends to, you know, just like everything keeps going through all these different cycles and it must just be so interesting to sort of keep up and make sure you're always reporting facts when the facts and the conclusions seem to shift. I think one of the challenges for science is like, it's, it's hard sometimes to know, you know, what to do, like what, you know, what the data says, because so much about science involves building on the results 
of one experiment and then creating another one. And then you have to replicate the work and then you can't be sure. I mean, that is one of the themes also in We the Scientists, because one of the challenges and one reason why I've spent so many years following, you know, following the patients and the families in this book is that even when you run a clinical trial, even when you do everything right and you gather the data, sometimes either the scientists or the Food and Drug Administration is still not sure if something is working. And and that's what happened, by the way, in this trial that I describe in the book, which is that you know, they 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 overcame all these obstacles. They found a promising therapy. They created a trial. And then the trial results don't indicate that people who are getting the drug are doing any better than people who aren't getting the drug. And of course, the FDA looks at that kind of result and says, we're not going to be able to approve this drug. You have to show us that you benefit from taking this this drug. And, you know, one of the things I describe in the book is how because they had forged this partnership, because they had a collaboration, that setback, which can kill so many drug development efforts, you know, didn't stop this group of people from continuing. And they are still trying to move this drug forward. Many of the patients still receive the drug through compassionate use, which is a way that the FDA allows people with life-threatening diseases to get access to drugs. And, And they're working on another effort to try potentially with another company to launch either another trial or to continue gathering data in the hopes that this drug will eventually get approved. But so many drugs just fail for all the reasons, you know, that you that you notice, which is it's really hard to know if what you're seeing is true or not. Oh my gosh. So how do the families feel about this book coming out? You know, I haven't spoken to everyone. I, you know, I've had a lot of great feedback from many people, you know, that I interviewed in the book and other people in the community. I hope that they'll feel that the book honors them because I feel that the book honors them, honors their partnership and their effort. The people I've heard from have said that it meant a lot to them to be able to have their have their story known. Um you know, when you write about a, a community, you know, it's a huge community. It's a rare disease, but as a community, it's a huge community. And there's there were so many scientists involved and there were so many parents involved. I mean, in one chapter in the book, one of the parents calls the drug that they eventually moved forward into the trial, the community's drug. And that's how they view it, the community's drug, a community effort. And so you can't tell a story about a community without sort of trying to focus on certain people within the community so those who are reading a book can follow the narrative. And I wish I could have like mentioned every single name of every single person. I chose some families and some scientists, but really I hope that they understand that the book is about about a community that came together. Do you feel like a sense of loss now that you're not working with them? Like... Do you not, you know, I feel, I feel like you're so invested. 
Well, you spend a lot of time on a story. You definitely, <laughs> you definitely get to get invested. I mean, I don't think I'll ever stop reporting on this particular story in the sense that I feel committed to following, following them and their efforts and to see if the drug does eventually get approved. But what I think I'm really committed to uh, most of all is the idea that the model that they helped develop and advance the one that they really believed in. I I'd like to draw attention to the model because because I believe that although I focused on a narrative about a, a specific group of people, this book is about all of us. Mm-hmm. All of us are patients one day, or where we we're helping people that we love who are patients, and and so we all have an investment in trying to figure out how to make the system work better and how to d- develop drugs more quickly and efficiently, and so like I I I feel like the broader issue of the need to create a system that will work for all of us, we the scientists, that's what my that's what my focus of my work will continue to be long past this book. And what do you think your mom would think about all this? I mean, she was always proud of whatever I did. You know, she was my mom. She didn't really require me to do very much for her to be excited. She just liked being with me. So, but she was a big fan and she understood. I did write a story about her and the frustrations of trying to find an effective therapy for her for the Wall Street Journal. And she was a very private person. You know, she, she, she really didn't want anyone to know about her story. And when I came to her and said, Mom, would you be okay about me writing about our family's journey and your story in the newspaper? She said to me, I'm only going to say yes because I trust you with my story. And I know you want to help other people and I want to help other people too. So I think that she would have liked that, that I'm still trying to use my family's experience and her and her life and her, the values I think she imparted to me to try to help other people. Oh, it's so nice. I know you're a facts-based scientist, science reporter and all that. Do you believe that like on some level your mom knows what's happening? I mean, no, I've, I'm a very emotional person. I, yeah. I mean, I spend a, my, the, I, Fortunately for me, I get to spend a lot of time with families and with, you know, people who are living with disease. And so you just working with people is really the pleasure, I think, of being a journalist. But yeah, I like to think that she might know. Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't have any proof. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I have to say that I felt I tried to draw upon her experiences and my family's experiences when I was writing the book. I tried to bring the compassion that so many people showed her and our family during her experiences with the with cancer i tried to bring that same compassion you know to to how i approach other families who are also wrestling with disease i mean none of us can ever know fully what someone else is going through but i do know what it's like to sit on the other side of the table from a doctor who tells you that you know, they're sorry, but there's nothing. Or, you know, you should go home and try to enjoy your time together. Or, you know, we're doing our best, but we're, you know, the odds of this doing much are very low. Like, and I do, and I think also most of us, or many of us, you know, know what that feels like. And so that's why I think so many of the people I encountered with this, writing this book, 
the doctors, the scientists, the government officials, the FDA regulators, the parents, the families, the you know the people that have have NPC disease. There were such um so many acts of kindness, so many um, examples of compassion in the book, and and to, to each other and 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 um, to help each other get through it. That it meant so much to me as as someone who had been a beneficiary also of acts of compassion and kindness by people who tried to help us. That's amazing. That's so nice. So what next? What are you doing? What are you going to embark on another long-term project or you like shorter stories? What are you thinking going forward? I love writing books and I enjoyed writing this book, but I'm also a, I'm a beat reporter at the Wall Street Journal and I love, I love beat reporting. I believe in the value of immersing yourself in a topic and I think I'm on the greatest beat you could possibly ask for, health and science. I mean, it's a beat that really like intersects with everything, you know, with money, with power, with compassion, you know, with with um, how we feel and, and, and our wellness. And it's something where it doesn't matter sort of what your your background is or your beliefs are or, you know, what experiences you have health is something that touches i mean we learned this in the pandemic if we didn't know it all before if we didn't know it before health is something that touches all of us and so you know i'm committed to continuing to write stories on you know about health and science that will make a difference amazing well if you end up being able to uh to prove anything about the afterlife you know can't wait to <laughs> read that story and in the meantime you know thanks for bringing all this really important information to all of us and trying to make systemic changes to make people's lives better. I mean, what more can you ask for? It's pretty awesome. Thank Thank you so much. It's so great to talk to you about all of this. Thank you. You too. All right. Keep it up. (laughs) You too, (laughs) Zabi. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye, Amy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.